Hey all you punk rockers out there, it's time for another episode of Let's Talk Punk Rock, the podcast where we take a deep dive into a different punk band each episode. On today's episode, we're jumping back in time again to when punk really hit the newspapers, especially with this band. So, if you think punk is dead, or ask yourself, do they owe us a living, just try not to be banned from the Roxy and fight war, not wars. That's right. On today's episode, we're doing crass. Now, to start this off, I do need to mention that in researching this episode, it was not as simple for me as other episodes in keeping the timeline straight, especially with so many members and them not all starting at the same time. As I always say, if I get any of this information wrong, please let me know and I will do my best to correct it. Alright, now on with the show. Crass was formed in 1977 in Epping, England by some residents of a place known as Dial House. Dial House was a communal living house that had already been operating for years before the band came to be, though. It was started by drummer Penny Rimbaud, real name John Ratter. Communal living house may not be the right term here, though, as members of Dial House didn't think of it as a commune. They called it an open door. The idea was that people could come and stay for a time before moving on to somewhere new. They would bring their own little something to help out for the time they lived there. Another reason it doesn't really fit the commune title is it wasn't based around any form of religion. It was just a house where people, mostly artists, lived together. Rimbaud's idea was that it would spark other people to start their own open doors, but that never really took off like he had hoped. The idea for the punk band came from Steve Ignorant, real name Steve Williams, seeing The Clash play. He said in a few interviews that at that show, Joe Strummer says, If you think you can do better, then go out and start your own band. And that's just what Ignorant set out to do. He then adopted the surname Ignorant from people telling him that he was ignorant about politics and things at the time. A pretty amusing beginning to a guy who would be vocals for one of the most iconic anarcho-punk bands of all time. Originally, Crass was a two-piece band with Ignorant on vocals and Rimbaud on drums. They released So What and Do They Owe Us a Living as a drum-vocal duo in that same year of 77. Before they were crass, Ignorant and Rimbaud had called themselves Stormtrooper for a short time before changing the name. They got the name Crass from a David Bowie song, Ziggy Stardust, where he says the line, The kids was just crass. Ignorant was a big Bowie fan at the time. This is also the same year Dave King, creator of the iconic Crass logo, moves to New York after going there to visit another future member of Crass, G. Voucher. We need to pause the story briefly to talk about that logo. For starters, the logo was not originally made for the band. It was made before the band even formed, actually. King was a friend of Rimbaud and had made it for the cover of Last of the Hippies, which Rimbaud had written. It started as a Christian cross with two snakes zigzagging over it. It then shifted to having the snakes go around it, chasing each other's tails. He says the influence for this came from Japanese family crest and not from the Ouroboros, as others have claimed. The Ouroboros, if you are unfamiliar, is the snake or sometimes dragon eating its own tail. From here, he decides to do it as a stencil and adds Union Jack elements to it. Some confusion about the band has come from this logo as it does resemble a swastika slightly. 
King says this was never the intention. Despite merchandise existing, Crass never intended to sell the logo on any merchandise. The most that would be done came in the form of patches they would give away at gigs or mail in responses to fan letters. Alright, back to the story. Bassist Pete Wright, Rhythm, Andy Palmer, and guitarist Steve Herman joined around this time. All of these people had lived or were currently living at Dial House. The band got their first live gig at a street festival on Huntley Street in North London. They were set to play five songs, but a neighbor pulled the plug on the show after only three. They did their first recording as a band in a basement studio. This studio got destroyed by the band stumbling around and just being aggressive. They managed to record Major General Despair, Angela Rippin, and Do They Owe Us a Living. Ignorant says he got the idea for Do They Owe Us a Living from hearing someone else write a song at Dial House using the same lines, only Ignorant changed up the verses and added a fuck to the final part of the chorus. Not long after recordings were finished, Steve Herman was kicked out of the band. This was for a couple reasons. Firstly, he had done a lot of the wrecking at the studio and was using punk as an excuse to be more aggressive. This was upsetting other members of the band. He also was attempting to make a more bouncy sound, which the band didn't like. He would be replaced by Phil Free, born Phil Clancy, as lead guitar. Free could play well and look the part more than Herman, which was a plus for the band's image. Herman did not go quietly, however. He showed up to one of their gigs to hurl insults at the band. This led to Ignorant pouncing on him and having to be pulled off by Herman's girlfriend at the time. Along with this scene, Herman had a guitar that he refused to return to the band. Needless to say, he wasn't thrilled about being kicked out. Semi-touring was beginning. Around 77-78, they started playing regularly with the UK subs at the White Lion Pub in Action Space. G. Voucher lined up four shows for them to play in New York. She chose to avoid the obvious places like CBGB's and Max's Kansas City. Instead, she went for places like the Puerto Rican Club or Polish Club. This was the first time Steve Ignorant had left the UK and was all over it. There was no judgment for vegetarianism, there were transvestite bars, and plenty of people were smoking weed in their houses. They did also experience the racism that 1970s New York would have. During one show, they played with a reggae group. Crass was permitted to use an elevator to get to the stage, but the guy operating the elevator refused to allow the reggae band on and told them to take the stairs. Crass essentially told him to fuck off and had the band ride up with them. After this mini New York tour, G. Voucher returns to the UK with the band. She was originally from there and had a history with Rimbaud from art college in the early 60s. One key performance that influenced how the band would go on came when they played at the Roxy for a couple nights. The first show went well enough, but the next night they arrived drunk. I'm not sure how drunk they were, but it was enough that the show was cancelled. 
The venue turned the lights out on them, and the band refused to leave until the lights came back on. After the issues at the Roxy, Penny Rimbaud decided to give them an ultimatum. They either needed to get more serious about the music, or he was leaving. They kicked him out. He was back the next day, though. I'm not sure if this was a known you're-out-for-a-day kind of thing, or if Rimbaud just came back. But either way, his bluff was called. They did decide to take things more seriously, though. They agreed to avoid alcohol and weed before shows. This is also around the time they adopted the all-black uniform that they would wear. This was to make none of them appear as a leader of the band. Ignorance states that part of this also comes from the washing machine not always working and them not having enough money or not willing to spend the money they got on clothes. That's not to say they were stingy with money. They just used most of it to help out charities and other causes. The all-black uniform did, however, give an unintentional fascist look to the band. This was especially true when combined with the band's logo patched on, which could cause issues from time to time. Two songs came out of the Roxy gigs. Rimbaud wrote Punk is Dead after this night. The other song inspired by this night, as you may have guessed, was Band from the Roxy. G. Voucher, Eve Libertine, born Bronwyn Jones, and Joy DeVivre start their own band, called Splinter around this time. But it doesn't last. These three women join Crass. Steve Ignorant admits to having mixed feelings about bringing these women into the band at first. He decides, though, that nobody else has women like them in their band. The last thing he wants is for Crass to be another Sex Pistols copycat, so the women are a good addition in that respect, too. Now that they have joined, the word cunt is no longer used. It is occasionally replaced in songs by runt. Along with the music they played, the band begins showing movies at their shows around this time. These would be shown while they played. This is when Mick Duffield steps into the band. He had been a Dial House resident briefly before moving to a squat with former crass guitarist Steve Herman and Shane McGowan, pre-Pogue's fame. Now, these weren't ordinary movies that he would show. Duffield liked to experiment with his film. He would bake it, stretch it, twist it, scratch it, whatever to see how it would affect it. At least on one occasion, he would have Steve Ignorant go out while he filmed him doing odd things like buying a newspaper and ripping it up in front of the man he had just purchased it from. Ignorant admits not understanding the point at the time, but did later on. Unfortunately, there has been little success at filming a crass gig back then. They would often play under 40-watt bulbs. 40-watt bulbs and 8mm film don't go well together, apparently. It would have mostly been shadows. 
Always moving forward with what they were doing, Eve Libertine and Penny Rimbaud started a stencil campaign. Each Saturday, they would go around with stencils of slogans they had made and graffiti them. These would be some of the classic crass sayings you could find on the banners at their shows like Fight War, Not Wars. In the beginning, they had a rule of not spray painting on anyone's property and always keeping the messages clean. A Christian group around the area saw what they were doing and decided to copy it with their own message. This prompted Crass to step up their operation. They began adding the Crass logo to the graffiti. They also start going out in groups like some sort of reservoir dogs walking down the alley scene, but for graffiti. Someone would have the stencil, someone would do the spray painting, and someone would be lookout. Ignorance says he wasn't a fan of this, but went along with it as it had become sort of band policy. The stencil campaign lasted about 18 months before band commitments became too much for them to continue. From here, the band goes on to record a demo with John Loder that would be re-recorded as their first album, Feeding of the 5000. A friend of the band named Tony Lowe gave a copy of this demo to Pete Stinnett at Small Wonder Records. Stinnett then contacts the band about putting out their album. Now in 1978, Feeding of the 5000 is released. The album is excessive in its use of swear words. One song, Asylum, is deemed too blasphemous for workers in an Irish record pressing plant, and they refuse to handle the album. Crass agrees to release the album without Asylum on it, and instead puts in two minutes of silence, which they title The Sound of Free Speech, for the first track. It did come with an explanation for why it was called that and offered to send a cassette of Asylum to anyone requesting it for the first 5,000 pressings. The album was sold for about half the price of most albums at the time. The album was not well received by music critics like Tony Parsons of NME or Gary Bushell of Sounds. Bushell had previously written a positive review for the band's demo but received an angry letter from Rimbaud about the inaccuracies in his review of the band. Despite the reviews, they still sold more copies than originally expected. 1979 comes and we see what is known as the Winter of Discontent. Workers have gone on strike and trash is getting piled high in the city. Crass decides to go on tour to Holland and Germany with Poison Girls. Other than things like the Sex Pistols on TV or in magazines, punk hadn't really reached these countries yet. The bands show up late to one show in Dusseldorf, Germany, and things were not going well. As the story goes, police had shown up to see what was happening, and all these kids waiting for a show decided to act out like they had read about and seen on TV. They flip a car, and things are set on fire. The police decide it would be a good idea at this point to just shut the show down altogether, but Crass explained to them that these kids are acting this way because they haven't gotten to see the show. Shutting it down before it begins would probably just make things worse. The police agree, and Crass gets to perform. After this, Crass sets a no more touring abroad policy. They decide they don't know enough about other countries' laws to be preaching their political views on them. Despite being labeled as an anarcho-punk band, this idea started more as a response to politics. To avoid being used to promote right or left-wing politics, Crass started putting up the anarchy banner at their shows. This wasn't really a pro-anarchy statement at the time so much as a middle finger to politics altogether. Now, some see the anarchy symbol and immediately think, oh, anarchy, chaos and violence, right? 
This is a whole subject I personally don't have the time to argue, but Crass also didn't like being associated with those ideas of anarchy. Their response to this is, they begin to put up the peace banner it shows as well. Not instead of, but as well. Soon enough, their shows had multiple banners hung. They realized they didn't like the political agenda of the peace movement either, and so started putting up banners with slogans. With enough of these, their shows didn't need to worry about the decor of the venue they played. They just brought their own. With Feeding of the 5,000 already being priced below other albums of the time, Crass started their Pay No More policy. They wanted to make their albums as cheap as possible. That way, their message would reach more people. They failed to originally factor in value-added tax. This meant that Crass actually ended up losing money on each album sold at the start. Because of this, Crass would be prompted to start Crass Records. Now they had the freedom to release whatever they wanted, within reason, as we'll find out later on. They released an extended version of Asylum called Reality Asylum as a 7-inch. Due to the blasphemous lyrics, police were sent to look into the band. Crass actually had a good relationship with the police at this point in their career. Officers would come by now and again to check things out, and it was all very polite. Scotland Yard was even called in at one point with the threat of prosecution, but the charges were dropped. Crass again were very polite when they came. They offered them tea and allowed them to look through their record collection. Thanks to the losing money from their pay-no-more policy, the band asked John Loder for help with finances and recording. Loder helped and ended up becoming the band manager. That year, they released their second full-length album, Stations of the Crass. This one was produced with a loan they received from Poison Girls, a band they'd played with often. This would be a double album, three sides of new material and one side of a recording from a live show in Islington. The big shock song on this album ended up being Mother Earth, a song written by Steve Ignorant in response to a headline he had seen in the Daily Star. They were using Myra Hindley to sell papers with a headline saying something along the lines of, Should They Let Her Go? If you are unaware, Myra Hindley was a serial killer, charged with murdering five children in the 60s. Listen as Ignorant does not hold back in directly calling out the star for this. In September of that year, Crass played a benefit show at Conway Hall in London's Red Lion Square with the Rondos. The show would be benefiting a group of anarchists facing conspiracy charges. Now, skinheads had been to Crass shows before with no trouble, but this show was different. A group of anti-fascist members of the crowd began to attack British movement neo-Nazis. Violence broke out. Crass would go on to blame leftists for the majority of the trouble here, but more so blaming organizations like Rock Against Racism for pushing people into different factions in the first place. This brought on a lot of criticism from anarchist groups and other followers of the band. Toxic Graffiti Fanzine would have been the benefactor for the next Crass gig at Conway Hall, but after this show, that definitely wasn't happening. Instead, Crass offered a flexi-disc rival tribal rebel rebel to the fanzine. It's fitting as this song was partly inspired by the events of that show. 
Listen to the lyrics as they go through exactly what splitting people into factions like this will do. Nineteen seventy nine also saw Crass Records beginning to put out music by other bands, the first of which was You Can Be You by Honey Bane, a teenage girl who had run away from a children's home and was staying at Dial House. The backing band is listed as Donna and the Kebabs, but was in fact Crass. Crass Records was mostly put on by Penny Rimbaud and was a chance for bands to get their music out there when nobody else would have even bothered with them. When 1980 came, the band re-released Feeding of the 5000, with the subtitle The Second Sitting. This time, it had the original version of Asylum added back in. That same year, Bloody Revolutions is released as a single and a benefit with Poison Girls, raising £20,000 to help fund the Wapping Autonomy Center, also known as the Anarchist Center. The same year as the re-release, Crass was set to play at the Stonehenge Free Festival, this held a special meaning to Penny Rimbaud as he had helped start the first Stonehenge Festival in 1974. Things had apparently changed in the six years since then, though. Once night came, it turned into a nightmare for any punks. Bikers were also in great numbers at this festival, and they began to attack punks at night, telling them they had no place at their festival. Reports make this sound like something out of an apocalyptic horror movie. Bikers with chains and bats beating punks and dragging them off into the night. Not what Rimbaud had imagined the festival being back in the mid-70s. Punks would continue to return in following years, however, up to 1984. The High Court put a stop to it in 1985. In 1981, they released Nagasaki Nightmare, a comment on the dangers of nuclear arms. This came with a poster-style map of nuclear installments in the UK. The other side of the 7-inch was Big A, Little A, a comment on being yourself. Nineteen eighty one also brings us one of Crass's better albums and what I think is one of their best pranks they pulled. Addressing feminist issues, sexual repression, and marriage, the album Penis Envy is released. Vocals this time are done by Eve Libertine and Joy DeVivre. Steve Ignorant is credited as not on this album, which he wasn't thrilled about. Track one is Beta Motel, which gets them into trouble for obscenity. We'll get into that later on. The final track, however, is Our Wedding. This is where some more of that crass genius comes out. The song didn't even start out the way it ended up. It was originally them messing around with a cover of the 50s song Lipstick on Your Collar. Crass, being crass, however, changed the lyrics to Lipstick on Your Penis. Recording wasn't easy, as they laughed too hard at the idea of the song each time they sang it. 
That and the worry of a potential lawsuit had them scrap the idea. They reworked it into Our Wedding. Now, if Our Wedding sounds way off from the other crass clips you've heard this episode, that's intentional. It was added on as the final track for Penis Envy. They posed as a different label called Creative Recording and Sound Services. That spells crass if you didn't catch on there. They then sent a flexi-disc to magazines that had teenage girls as their target audience. One magazine fell for it. Loving Magazine agreed to put the white flexi-disc in their issue. Loving was a teen romance magazine. They offered the flexi-disc with the message it would make your wedding day just a bit extra special. Readers who liked the song would send off for the album, not realizing they had just purchased a copy of Crass's latest album, Penis Envy. The hoax eventually got exposed and Loving magazine had to issue an apology to its readers. Crass technically had broken no laws and faced no charges for the prank. Don't think the album didn't get them in any trouble, though. Beta Motel would still present a problem. Copies of this album were seized from a record shop in Manchester along with copies of Frankenchrist by the Dead Kennedys. The charges? They violated the Obscene Publications Act. Crass wound up in court over the obscene lyrics in Beta Motel, which ended up costing them a lot of money in court fees. They had to play the song in court, and the judge would tick a check with his pen every time he heard a swear word. The judge ruled that because of the song, the album was too obscene to be allowed in Manchester. Crass could have taken this to a higher court, but would have risked it being banned in the entire UK. Although they did end up having it banned in Manchester, and they lost a lot of money in court fees, they did not have to pay any obscenity fees. Now, just what was so obscene about this song? Let's listen. That's it. Views from a submissive and sexualized woman meant to make those who continued this kind of treatment of women to feel guilty. By now, the band was getting very serious about what they were doing. Drugs and alcohol were no longer allowed in Dial House even. A gig was once even canceled due to ignorant getting a short haircut. They had worried that a haircut like that might attract a skinhead crowd. In 1982, after nearly a year of recording and mixing, we see the release of Crass's next album, Christ, the album. It was a two-album box with one being entirely new material and the other being a live recording from their 1981 gig at the 100 Club. Taking longer than albums before, the band had to rethink the length it took to make an album as they felt some of the songs were now redundant. The entire Falklands War had come and gone. Along with being a double LP, the album came with a book called A Series of Shock Slogans and Mindless Token Tantrums, which was about basic rights and peace. They got the name for this book from an article in The Music Maker, which said, Crass by name, even worse by nature, 
Like it or not, they just won't go away. Crass are the distempered dog end of rock and roll's once bright and vibrant rebellion that they're so unattractive, unoriginal, and badly balanced in an uncompromising and unhumorless way simply adds to the diseased attraction of their naively black and white world where words are a series of shock slogans and mindless token tantrums to tout around your tribe and toss at passers-by. Steve Sutherland This album also saw the return of Steve Ignorant on vocals. One of his self-written songs was track two, Mother Love, which he wrote against his parents after a visit. He had gone to see them and realized that they didn't really care about his music and had probably never even listened to his records. This at the time made him angry, but he has since said that he regrets writing the song and now understands they just wanted their own little lives. Have a listen and see if you can feel the anger he felt then. final track of the first record in the set was Major General Despair, another anti-war song. Here, they talk about the foolishness of war and spending money on war instead of using it to help your own people. This album might have been the final crass album if not for the Falklands War. Around 82 or 83, they released the song Sheep Farming in the Falklands on a flexi-disc. The Falklands War had lasted from April to June of 1982. 20,000 copies of these flexi-discs were anonymously slipped into the sleeves of other records by workers at Rough Trade Distribution. This allowed people to hear the ideas put forth by Crass who might not have found them on their own. Along with throwing jabs at Thatcher for sending soldiers to die fighting for land that had been stolen by Britain in the first place, it took some jabs at the soldiers themselves. This last part did not sit well with Ignorant, who admits regret for the song. At some point around the time of the last single, they release a more direct jab at Margaret Thatcher in their single, How Does It Feel to Be the Mother of 1,000 Dead. This one came in a black sleeve with white crosses on it. Thatcher had even been asked once if she had heard it on Prime Minister's Question Time. British politician Tim Egger went against the band for this song and even wanted to prosecute, saying that it was obscene. 
There's a great radio interview on YouTube of him talking with Pete Wright and Andy Palmer on LBC Radio. The members of Crass represented themselves very well and stayed calm the entire time, making Egger look a little foolish. By this time, Crass was ready for another hoax. This one came in the form of what is now referred to as Thatchergate. Crass edited together tapes of Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher to make them sound like they were having a conversation. They made it look like Thatcher was talking about intentionally sinking the HMS Sheffield to escalate the Falklands War, and Ronald Reagan talking about making Europe the battlefront against the Soviets. Copies of this tape were leaked to the press. Rimbaud states that this was their way of getting information out that they had been told by soldiers who had fought in the Falklands War. The government, however, thought it was propaganda made by the KGB. Eventually, the tape was connected back to Crass. They began to be contacted by groups wanting to interview them, including the KGB posing as a magazine, apparently. Crass did agree to an interview with the Observer if they would publish the alleged information from the tape. Also around this time, they were presented with the opportunity to get compromising pictures of Dennis Thatcher with a prostitute. The band debated if this was something they really wanted to get into and ultimately decided that they did not. 1983 brings us the release of their next album, Yes Sir I Will. The entire album was recorded in about 44 minutes, a huge difference from the time they put into Christ the album. The title of the album came from a newspaper article with Prince Charles meeting with Simon Weston. Weston was a soldier who had suffered horrible burns. As the story goes, Prince Charles told him, Get well soon. And Weston replied with the words, Yes sir, I will. There are no breaks in this record, making it technically the longest punk song ever recorded. Rimbaud says this is a statement to show that it isn't a bunch of little problems, but they all roll into what is one giant problem. It was later broken into seven tracks for the CD release. One of those tracks is Steve Ignorant's song, What If I Told You To Fuck Off, which was his response to all the people at shows who would come up to him and try to question the viability of anarchy. The album was not a success, and Ignorant has said that he did not like it and the whole thing wasn't fun anymore. Performing it was even worse. They would perform the album in its entirety. Part of this would end up being Steve and G. Voucher standing there holding the lyrics and basically just reading them off with the band playing behind them. In 1984, Crass plays their first show abroad in nearly five years. They played in Iceland, but Rimbaud had blown an eardrum and couldn't play, so they had to bring in a replacement drummer for this. They also began to struggle that year with their own path as a band. Were they really doing what they had set out to do in the beginning? They were starting to really get noticed by larger groups of people now. They also had the legal fees to take care of from Penis Envy. March 12, 1984, the minor strike begins. The strike comes from the announcement that mines were going to be closing down, putting over 20,000 people out of work. May 29, 1984, police arrive in riot gear 
and the strike becomes increasingly violent. Plenty of photographs have been taken and are really worth checking out for a frame of reference. July 7, 1984. Crass plays a benefit show for the miners in Aberdeen, Wales. On the way back from this show, Palmer announces that he will be leaving the band. He had wanted more of a relationship with his partner. The rest of the band followed and split up too. Now, there is rumor here that the band had always intended to split up in 84, but different members have said different things on whether or not that's bullshit, so it's up to you to decide, dear listener. Over the next couple years, members begin moving out of Dial House. After so long together, they struggled finding their own individual identity. Even wearing colors other than black was difficult for some. Crass isn't totally done yet, though. In 1985, they release Acts of Love. It's pretty different and not considered a true Crass album by most fans. In reality, it was mostly a Rimbaud project with help from former members of Crass. It was made up mainly of poems written by Rimbaud pre-Crass. In 1986, Ten Notes on a Summer Day is the final Crass album to be released. It is mostly created by Rimbaud and openly disliked by Ignorant. The album was recorded backwards from how most albums are recorded. They began with piano, then vocals, then synthesizers, guitar, bass, and finally drums. In the time following the end of Crass, Ignorant continued to play in some bands, eventually finding himself in the unlikely place of Children's Puppeteer. I've read that he now does volunteer work in Water Rescue, though. Pete Wright continued performing for a time. G. Voucher, Eve Libertine, and Penny Rimbaud continued to work together doing poetry and free jazz. In 1992, Crass Records officially closes its doors. Ten years later, November of 2002, the band gets back together as Crass Collective. They put together Your Country Needs You, a concert against war. October of the next year, they changed the name to Crass Agenda. The year after that, they start a campaign to save the Vortex Jazz Club in Stoke Newington, North London. June of 2005, they changed the name again to Last Amendment. The last show I can find is at the Vortex in June of 2012. Alright, we made it through another one. That is it for Crass. This was a really fun one for me, and I cannot recommend Story of Crass enough if you want to read more about this band. A very special thank you to all the punk rockers out there listening. Thanks again to anyone who has started following me on social media. If you're enjoying the show, feel free to leave a 5-star review to help others find it, or just tell a friend to check it out. Thanks again to Granddaddy Long Greg for the logo, and hey, if you like that logo, head on over to tpublic.com to get some merch with it on there. Link is in the show notes. I'm a one-man operation on this podcast. That's research, scripting, recording, and editing, so every little bit of support helps keep the lights on for the show. Now, if you don't feel like leaving a review or already have and still want to get in touch with me, go ahead and follow me on Twitter at Let's Talk Punk. That's Let's underscore Talk underscore Punk. You can also find the Facebook or send me an email at Let's Talk Punk Rock at gmail.com. That's all one word there. Let's talk punk rock at gmail.com. As you may know, I love to hear punk stories. That's part of the reason I started this podcast. Anyway, if you have a crazy punk story you'd like to share, please email it to me. 
I may even read it on the show one day. Okay, final part of the show. Hints for our next episode. They were formed in London in 1976. They only released four studio albums, and possibly the dead giveaway. This band was the jumping off point for Billy Idol's solo career. Alright, that's it. I'll catch you on the flip side.